inglés. Y estamos muy contentos de tener ustedes con nosotros. Gracias por su presencia con nosotros hoy. I could go on and preach a sermon in Spanish, but that wouldn't help the most of you. So one day we'll understand everybody else's language. I think in heaven, all the languages will be there. We'll just be able to understand them all. And we'll see the rich blessing that Babel, though a curse, turns out to be when it's glorified. So praise be to God. I have one verse this morning to read. Um, from the scriptures. It's from our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 13, excuse me, not the Sermon on the Mount, but his Sermon of Parables from Matthew 13, and it's this one verse, verse 44, and it says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he hid, and from his joy goes and sells all that he has, buys that field. Let's pray. Father, we ask your presence in a special way on this ordained means of presenting your truth. Pray for your help and your power to be able to speak of these things that are so magnificent in a way that your spirit will bless and accomplish your purposes in every one of us who's here or listening. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, we had to memorize scripture, and I'm so glad that that's a part of the program here for, for children, young people. We had these ABC verses um, all the way through Z. Zealous for good works was the Z verse. All have sinned and come short. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Come unto me, all you who labor, and so on, right through the, the list. But somehow we stop doing this when we get old enough to be able to do it, I guess. We're not in the class. We don't have to go through memorization. And I will unabashedly tell you that this morning my goal, at least one of them in this sermon, is to get you memorizing scripture again if you aren't. And I want to use this text as a means to do that. You know, the Lord Jesus also said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this verse that I read in the beginning, this man who finds a treasure and it's hidden and he hides it again, it's what it really means, it's the same verb, and he sells everything he has to be able to buy the field. Now, generally speaking, commentators believe that the treasure is Christ. He is the treasure of all treasures. Jesus, priceless treasure, source of purest pleasure, we think. But Jesus is also the word. And he's the word made flesh. And so, therefore, where do we find out about Jesus? Authoritatively, finally, comfortably from the scriptures. So I want to suggest to you this morning that another way of looking at this text is that the word and that whole word is the field from 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth to even so come Lord Jesus. And there are treasures scattered all through this field. In fact, there are fields, many t different types of fields. We have prophecy, we have history, we have poetry, we have the gospels, we have the epistles, etc. And there are treasures in them. And I want to encourage us to take even those memory verses that you have, you know, and investigate the field so that we see why, as we study it and reflect on it and meditate, the Holy Spirit inspired the prophet or the apostle to write those verses, put those treasures in those fields. Now let me give you some examples. We've already had them this morning in the reading. Perhaps you felt very odd hearing this Jeremiah 9 passage read. Lamenting women, overcoming disaster. But then there's this treasure right in verses 23 and 24. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his strength, the rich man in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he knows me and understands that I am the Lord. So the question is, why is that treasure put here? I'm not going to answer that question for you. I'm going to let you go home and think about it. Because we're going to deal with another passage and another treasure. But here's another couple of examples. Joshua begins and ends with these treasures. Moses is gone. Joshua's got the responsibility to lead the Israelites into the land and conquer it. What does God tell him in verse 8 of the first chapter? This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate thereon day and night. You may be careful to do according to all things that are written in this law, that will make your way prosperous, and that will give you great success. Then they have the conquest. Not totally finished. Time for Joshua to die, chapter 24. And he gives them a farewell speech, like Samuel did. And he says, I'm leaving you. You've got more work to do. Will you follow the true God, or will you go back to the gods that Abraham worshipped before God called him out and brought him here? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What a wonderful treasure. And then one other, they're just everywhere. I'm just giving you some samples. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is writing to the Corinthians about helping the poor saints in Jerusalem by taking an offering. And he's telling them reasons and how this will abound to thanksgiving for more people. That's really why Paul wants it to happen. It's not just to take care of them. It's that more people will give thanks for God's work because Paul wants more people thanking God. But in the middle of that eighth chapter, we have this treasure. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So we've got this principle of um, treasure in the fields of Scripture. And my goal, as I say, is to encourage you to be hiding these in your heart and your mind. You know, there, there are nations, there are places where they can't have Bibles. They don't have them. And in the beginning, a lot of the Christian, first Christians, may have been slaves and not even literate. 
And they had to depend on preaching and teaching and to memorize whatever they were told of the scripture before the printing press made it possible to have Bibles. What a privilege we have. It could be taken away as it is, has been in other parts of the world. Well, this morning especially, I want us to focus on one buried treasure in this 14th chapter of Romans. Maybe you noticed it as it was read. And it's verse 17, and here's how it reads. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, I think what we ought to be doing when we find these treasures is saying, how come it's here? Why is it put in this place? Why does Paul take this verse in this passage to mention kingdom for the only time in the book of Romans? Even though Paul always preached about the kingdom. You read in Acts 14, you read in Acts 19, and twice in Acts 28, which we heard read for us last week. That when Paul spoke to people, when he evangelized them, he was talking about the kingdom of God. But in Romans, this is the only place where the word occurs. And you have this magnificent, maybe the most structured, glorious of Paul's epistles. It gets to this 14th chapter. You've got eight chapters of tremendous doctrinal treasures all through those passages. And you get to chapters 9 to 11, and you're finding out the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles when it comes to understanding the gospel and why. Paul explains it. And he ends with one of the greatest treasures in Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The way he ends this chapter when he's dealing with such a problem. And then he begins chapter 12 with an, another couple of treasures. I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, and so on. And then he develops that in chapter 12, how that works, how you apply this. Chapter 13 tells the Roman Christians how to live under a secular government. Very important chapter. Then we get to chapter 14. It's about food. It's about days. It's about a problem in the Roman church. It's a flat part of the wheel. They're out of kilter when it comes to these things of eating and drinking. It's a problem. This is a tremendous church. Paul will go on to say to them in chapter 15, I'm convinced you are full of goodness and able to admonish one another, encourage one another, exhort one another. You've got this problem. So he takes it up in chapter 14. He doesn't want to see the church divided over foolishness, over food and drink. And he uses a lot of arguments. He tells them that they should be respecting one another. In every church, in every family, in every marriage, there are differences. Are we going to try to make people just like us, or are we going to recognize that's the way God's made them? Unless it's Sinning, and of course, all of us sin at one time or another, and far more than we want. We're serious Christians, but we need to accept one another's differences, personalities, ways of thinking and speaking and doing things. 
and particularly on these secondary matters like food and drink. So how does Paul deal with this problem? Surprisingly, in a way, we would not define as practical. It's solid theology. It's God-centeredness. It's getting things that are most important back in view so that we'll treat things that are lesser important where they belong. So that's what Paul's doing here in this wonderful text. For the kingdom of God, folks, you Romans who are talking about whether you should Jews observe certain days or Gentiles not, or you Jews don't eat certain things and Gentiles do. And of course, they had a mixture of Jews and Gentiles in the church. I want to say to you that you're to welcome one another, but not to argue and to quarrel. So here's the solution. Here's the foundation for all that I've said before to you and that I'll say after this. It's this verse. So what I want to do is walk through this treasure with us this morning and argue the case that Paul is giving us here the kind of checkup that we need for not just food and drink, but for all the distinctions that we have a tendency to make among people. Cultures, languages even. Of course, if we can't speak somebody else's language, we can't communicate with them. But whether they're rich or poor, young or old, married, singular, sing, singular single, divorced, whatever, widowed, whether they have a job or don't, what age they are, none of those things are the things that Paul is going to focus on to solve this issue in the church. He's focusing rather on what is the kingdom of God. Do you realize, he's saying to them, which he says all the time in his epistles, do you realize, Christian, who you are? More importantly, do you realize whose you are, who you belong to, what you came from, where you're going, what price it was that put you where you are and brought you together? You people are so different. What are you doing here together? Look at us. What are we all doing here together? What brought us together? God and for his kingdom to advance it. That's why we're taught to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's what we want, or we should want. So let's go through this text and think about it for a minute. It starts out with this little word, for. And it's sort of a short form of therefore, isn't it? Little words saying, now what I'm about to say is I'm creating a reason for what I've said before. I'm giving you a foundation to stand on. And so when he says for, he's saying, here's factions where I want you to focus. This will solve your issue if you get this right. And then the next words, the kingdom of God. So that's what he's introducing here as the basis on which this flat side of the wheel can be fixed, their tilt can be corrected, and their imbalance put right, the kingdom of God. When we think of a kingdom, just be very, very basic this morning. Like 
could ask the kids, what do you have to have in order to have a kingdom? How many things do you need? Actually, only two. You need a king, and you need something to rule over, or some people to rule over. Here's your absolute basic definition. You don't have a king, you can't have a kingdom. The king doesn't have something to rule over, he's pretending. He's fantasizing. So that's, that's the sort of basic thing that a kingdom is. But Paul doesn't start out by defining the kingdom. He says what it isn't. It's not. Uh, the ESV says is not a matter of. There's n really no matter there. It just says is not and then is. So it's not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not these things that we so easily divide over. Do you use butter or margarine? All these various things. What do you eat? What do you drink? Um, what colors do you like or don't like, etc.? It just can be any number of things. It's not those things. That's not what it is because, if nothing else, those things pass away. They don't last. It's impermanent. So why are you getting upset and fractionalizing over things that pass away and perish when you're part of a kingdom. And then he comes to say what the kingdom is. It's God's kingdom. That's why I wanted us to read Psalm 47 this morning as we began the service, and, and maybe you noticed it. If you didn't, you can see it very clearly. The, the most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Next verse, sing praises to our king, for God is the king of all the earth, says Psalm 47. And all through the Old Testament, God is treated as king. And another word for king, and we use it, though we don't think necessarily of king when we use it, is sovereign. We talk about the sovereignty of God. What do we mean? We mean he's in charge. He's totally in charge. He's in charge of everything that has ever happened and can happen, even though he is also completely holy. We cannot grasp this. It's beyond us. But he is sovereign. He is king. And he's king over all the earth. That's the very beginning point. And when John the Baptist came to announce the coming of the king, he preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus picked up that same message, as you'll notice. The kingdom of God is near. Why was it near? Why was it nearer than before? Well, because the king was actually there. Well, he didn't look like a king. He didn't act like the king that the people were expecting. He was the king. And that's why it was near. It had come near. Will you believe this or not? It's always the question. Well, what is this kingdom? How, what is this kingdom of God and how is it going to solve this problem? This imbalance in the church. Correct it. Paul has three elements in this kingdom and what he's doing here in these three elements of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, he's giving you a summary of what he's taught the Romans. He's 
just basically summing up what he has taught them all throughout this epistle. We'll see that shortly when we look back again at Romans 5 and those early verses in Romans 5. These things are in this order for a reason. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. They are cumulative. Peace depends on the righteousness. Joy depends on the righteousness and in the Holy Spirit and the peace. So let's consider them and see if this is true. What do we think of when we think of righteousness? In the Sunday school class this morning, we had an interesting discussion about this. And I would say that, first of all, the world has an idea of what righteousness is. People that aren't Christians. Often it's called justice, and that's as far as it goes. Or good deeds, and that's a sort of kind of righteousness. But biblical righteousness, godly righteousness, starts with God. And the realization that we don't have his righteousness, we aren't righteous as he requires, and we need it, how do we get it? We can't get it by earning it. We can't get it by tears. Top Lady's hymn, should my tears forever flow, all for sin would not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. So when we speak of righteousness as evangelical Protestants, believing what the New Testament makes so clear we're talking about being justified, declared righteous by faith in the righteousness of Christ. So he took our sin, and we receive his righteousness. That's our position in Christ as righteous. But that's only half the picture. And the New Testament and the Old Testament, for that matter, uses often the figure of a root and fruit or a tree that is to be determined as to what it is in its quality by what it produces. And if the tree produces good fruit, it's a good tree. If it doesn't, our Lord said, it's not a good tree. So the position of being justified is always followed by those that are genuinely justified, Generated by the Holy Spirit, born again, made new, followed by good works. Fruit. Oh, seldom even really close to perfect. We could wish it were. Still have fruit. And, And that fruit is essential to show that we have been justified. Interesting, I was reading this morning and Revelation chapter 3, and five of the seven churches, congregations addressed in Revelation 2 and 3, when Christ starts speaking to them, he says, I know your works. I know your fruit, he's saying. I see what you're doing or you're not doing. I see your works as good or not. Those that need to be encouraged, those that of which you need to repent. And John has a striking statement when he says, um, um, let me find it, yes, 1 John 2, if you know that Jesus is righteous, you know, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
So the evidence of the fact that we are in a position of right standing, we're justified, is the fruit that we bear. And all through the New Testament, Paul's goal and Peter's goal, James's goal, is that we produce more and more fruit. Um, it's what the Lord Jesus said in John 15, didn't he? You know this passage too, I'm sure. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, burned. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. These things I've spoken to you, and this will bring us to our third characteristic of this kingdom, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Having said this, necessity of our position in Christ by faith being justified and the necessity of bearing fruit, the true believer does not trust in his faith. He trusts in Christ for his righteousness. And he does not trust in his works. So we do not look at our works or even the works of another person to verify definitively whether or not they are Christian. We want to be charitable. We want to be kind. We want to be loving and accept people as much as possible who call themselves Christians and encourage them. I often think there's only two people in the world, unbelievers, and we want to see them converted. Believers, and we want to see them grow in grace, encourage them. But we don't put our trust in those works or in our faith. Our trust is in Christ alone. And so the evidence that we are producing fruit is we go on repenting. When we, sin. we go on trusting. We go on confidently that the Lord is our Savior and our salvation. So this righteousness is, is critical. It is a cornerstone of the kingdom of God. Do we have it? Is Christ ours? Are we in him? Are we growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ? Do we have the desire to produce more and better fruit? Whatever we're doing, and I'm not talking just about witnessing to people or seeing people converted, that's wonderful. We should want to do that when we can. But in every sphere of our life, all legitimate work and activities can be done in righteousness offering to God, thanksgiving for his righteousness imputed to us in Christ. So that's just the first stone. The second stone, peace, something else the world talks about, but knows very little about, certainly in terms of lasting peace. Oh, there's so much talk about this. Peace here, peace there. I'm thinking of my beloved Columbia and the fact that the former president received the Nobel Prize for Peace because of purportedly reconciling one of the factions that were 
out of totally out of control, where the situation is almost as bad as it ever was, and there's no real peace. And why? Because it's not biblical peace. That's the only true peace. The New Testament says Christ is our peace. He's broken down the walls that separate us. And so this peace that Paul's talking about is, again, of two parts. It's a vertical purse, and then it's a horizontal. We're reconciled with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are reconciled with him. We have access to God, which we didn't have before. It's the kingdom. When you come into the kingdom by faith, you are reconciled with the king. You're on speaking terms with him. He's on speaking terms with you. Gives you his spirit. Then there's the horizontal, which is very parallel to the fruit of saving faith. There's peace with one another. We are reconciled with one another. Or if we're not, we're miserable until we are. And we're ready to forgive. We're ready to acknowledge our fault. Or we're even willing to say, okay, I don't think I was wrong, but I'm still sorry, and I want this to be straightened out. I don't want flat parts to our relationship. Hilts. Imbalance. So true peace coming from God through Christ, received by faith, with God and with one another. But then the culminating part of this, <laughs> treasure. <laughs> and this reality is joy. But it's not just any kind of joy. As kids, we used to sing a chorus. I don't know if this is <clears throat> still around. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And somebody say, where? You say, down in my heart. Well, if, if you've got the joy down in your heart, it's because Jesus lives there. And he's convinced you that real joy is knowing your sins are forgiven. You're right with him. You can be right with others. You're not subject to condemnation anymore. Joy in the Holy Spirit that's very, very different from, again, the world's kind of joy, and it's even different from having fun. You can have fun. But you can have joy in the Holy Spirit and be like my dear friend Rick Daniels' wife who was stricken with MS, and they'd been married for five years. And he cared for her as a full-time caregiver for her for the last seven years of her life. Sandy almost invariably, even though suffering and she could let you let Rick know she was suffering and whatever, there was a joy there. And there was a joy in his serving her. It went beyond anything that could be manufactured or produced by what the world says is joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit is knowing that you're right with God, right with one another and you're doing his will the best you know it. Um, it's, it's amazing where we see this joy show up. Psalm 4 says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Peace. There's joy and peace linked. I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me to dwell in safety. So, source of joy is God being a part of his kingdom, 
Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength, Jews, as you look at this beginning of a new temple. It doesn't look anything like those older people here who are weeping because they remember the glory of the old one. But he says, you need to proceed because the joy of the Lord is your strength. The future is our hope, not looking backwards. In Acts 13, the last verse, another treasure. After all the sufferings that had gone on and Paul had been kicked out of Antioch of Pisidia, we read this, the disciples continued on, filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Can't manufacture this, but it comes from reflecting on who God is, what he's done, what our position is, what he's done so far in our lives. He will keep it to the end. He will bring us to the conclusion without fail. He cannot fail. So Paul wrote the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Christians, do you know this joy? Is your foundation solidly set on your being members of this subjects of and sons and daughters of God's kingdom? No matter what else is going on with us, ultimately, when we come to die, what's going to matter is this kingdom. Are we there? Are we in it? And if you're here or you're listening, not a Christian, maybe this is, sounds like just so much talk about things that Christians talk about because they believe in fairy tales. Let me assure you that one day, one day, there will only be one kingdom, and it will be a kingdom. Christ will be the king. and He will be manifested and shown in all of his glory and beauty power, majesty. Every knee will bow to him as we've sung already this morning. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is King, Lord to the glory of God his Father. That's our hope, dear saints, this morning. And I trust that um, if this isn't the rock on which you're functioning, you're looking for other things, if food and drink, or their relatives, uh, those things which are most important for you, that you would repent, that you would turn to God and say, oh Lord God, make yourself and your reign and your reality and the righteousness you've given me by faith and the work so far I've been able to do by your grace and the peace you, I have with you and I can have access to you and with one another, oh, and if I've got something that's against somebody, help me to go to them and not pretend like I can come to this service or certainly this table and not have a right spirit and a reconciled heart to my brothers and sisters. Amen. Lord, give me this joy. Give it to me. And he will do it. He is faithful. So may the Lord drive us to prayer this morning. Seek this from him. Because this is the solution. Paul said it. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Go on, brothers and sisters, searching the fields for those treasures. When you find them, hide them in your heart. Take possession of the field. And the Lord will bless you and cause you to grow. No, he's done it for me. He's done it for many others. Glory to his name. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege to consider this part of it this morning and this aspect based on your own statement, dear Savior, that you are the treasure. If we have found you, it's because you found us. If we sought for you, it's because you are seeking for us. So having found it, oh, having found you, having put our faith in you, having you come and reside in our hearts, but even more important is our residing in you. We are in Christ if we are Christians this morning. Oh, we thank you for this. We pray for a greater appreciation of this wonderful righteousness, this peace that you give that surpasses understanding and circumstances that are awful. And there may be those going through terrible circumstances this morning. Strengthen the afflicted, O Lord. Encourage them. Mend them. And Lord, for this joy that we would have it on top of everything else, no matter what's happening, that we can rejoice because our names are written in heaven if we belong to you. Accomplish your purposes again, we pray, O Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. We'll sing a hymn to think on these things.